1: Welcome to True Crime Garage, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who recently received a fine for illegal gambling. Here is the captain.
2: His mother was a mother. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend.
1: All right, today we are drinking Paradox Paradox. Pilsner by the fine people over at Paradox Brewing in beautiful North Hudson, New York. This is a fantastic old-style Pilsner, 5.5% ABV, delicious and crisp, garage-grade, three and three-quarter bottle caps out of five, and this wonderful beer was brought to us by our fantastic friends right here. First up, we have a fan for life, so cheers
2: to Jade in Dallas and a big shout out to Margaret in Brookline, Massachusetts.
1: Next up, we have Naomi and Parts Unknown
2: and a big We Like Your Jib to Donovan in Kingman, Arizona.
1: Next up, we have a classy cheers to our friend Dawn in San Diego, and last but certainly not least, we have Mara in Plattsburgh, New York. Cheers to everyone who went to TrueCrimeGarage.com and contributed to this week's beer fun.
2: Yeah, B-W-E-R-U-N, beer run. And make sure you check out the new shirts. They should be available of this week. And we redid the douche canoe shirts. The, they will be back in stock. So check those out at TrueCrimeGarage.com. And that's enough of the business.
1: A new and improved douche canoe for all of you. <laughs> All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. All right, yesterday we were able to retrace Susan... Lyle's last steps leading up to her disappearance. And I'm going to give that an A minus there, Captain. We did a pretty darn good job. We also discussed her boyfriend, Rich, and some questionable activities regarding him and his possibility of being maybe a suspect being involved in her disappearance.
2: Well, not just his actions, but the actions of his family as well.
1: Mommy and daddy are weird. <laughs> Now, before we get into some other potential suspects, let's get into another case that made Susie's case feel like deja vu. In 1985, 13 years earlier, a young, sunny Albany student named Karen Wilson vanished. She was last seen on the same Central Avenue where the Stewarts Convenience Store was located, near Colony Place, a shopping mall 2.4 miles from the campus. Karen purchased some clothing at the mall that day, and while she had an appointment at the tanning hut, she was not seen there. So she was scheduled to go tanning. No one says that she ever made it to this appointment. The last known sighting of Karen was at 7.20 p.m. It is believed that she decided to walk back to campus and was abducted near the entrance ramp to I-90. According to our friends over at the Charlie Project, a strange man was seen in the area, but neither Karen nor any of her personal possessions have ever been found. And a little freaky piece of information, Karen Wilson lived in the same dorm building as Susie, the Colonial Quad dorm. Karen is still missing to this day.
2: Well, we see a lot of times with college students going missing go back to the Brian Schaefer case and then, you know, not that far away and not that many years away, does Joey Labute go missing as well?
1: And with these people that just seem to vanish into thin air, because you have so many questions, it's so easy for us to sit on our computers and link them together because there's not a whole lot of details of the why or how was this person abducted or why did they go missing in the first place? Right. Now, let's fast forward to 2013, because police were looking at a 54-year-old man named Anthony Collins. Collins attempted to abduct two sunny college students at knife point. He approached one of these young women at the CDTA bus stop on the sunny Albany downtown campus area early in the morning. This would be 7.55 a.m. And he threatened her with a knife to her back. Another student saw what was going on and got involved. Somehow distracted the attacker. And this young woman thankfully was able to get away. But at that same bus stop, about 40 minutes later, this same man attempted a second abduction. Hey, when the first one doesn't work out, let's just stick around and find somebody else. Right. A double piece of shit. There you go. So, He attempted a second abduction this time without a knife and Anthony Collins was identified after police reviewed surveillance footage and charged him with second degree attempted kidnapping. According to the times union paper quote, police are looking into the possibility, however remote that Collins could have been involved in the disappearances of Albany students, Suzanne Lyle in 1998 and Karen Wilson way back in 1985. But eventually police said that they had not been able to establish any link whatsoever between Collins, who is diagnosed schizophrenic and either of those unsolved cases. Well, here's
2: what the problem though is like we said, there's so many young students in a small radius, these predators that are looking for that type of victim. They know where to go.
1: It's a, it's what you would call kind of a high risk area just because you're around a whole lot of people, right? You know, when Ted Bundy wanted to abduct someone, he went to college campuses. He went to the lake where it was just packed that day. It was easy to find a victim amongst a whole big crowd of people.
2: But also what's different though, too, is you you go to the suburbs, you have people that are normally on a more set schedule where these students, their schedules are constantly changing and their whereabouts are constantly changing. So by them going missing, I think it takes a little longer for people to even notice when they're gone.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. That's true. Two other suspects have been mentioned as possibilities in connection with Susie's case. Now, to be clear, these names have not been mentioned by law enforcement. Rather, both suspects are theoretical ones named in podcasts, which have delved into Susie's case. One of these we have already mentioned, the Upstate Unsolved. The other is true crime bullshit. The first of these potential suspects is a guy named John Reagan. John Reagan was a 48-year-old son of a prominent and affluent family in Waterbury, Connecticut. John's wife, Ruth, was a Catholic schoolteacher. John himself, he was a traveling salesman for a roofing and siding company. John and Ruth were popular and well-liked. But in 2004, old Johnny was arrested after cornering a young female coworker in his parents' empty house. He restrained her and tried to sexually assault her. Somehow she managed to get away. This was a huge scandal in the area at the time because John was a pretty regular dude. He was a, a soccer dad, a golfing buddy to many people in the area, a real neighborhood type of guy. This was just the tip of the iceberg. 11 years earlier, in 1993, a neighbor of John Reagan's, a working wife and mother named Donna Palomba, was home on Friday night asleep. Her kids were also asleep. Her husband was away on a very rare trip to Colorado. Donna woke to find a man straddling her back. He put a pillowcase over her head and tied nylon stockings over it, covering her mouth and then around her neck and restraining her arms and legs. The man wore gloves and a mask. He cut off her clothes and he raped her. When he was done, he held a gun to her temple, and he told her that if she called the police, he'd come back and he would kill her. She did not recognize his voice. When she heard him leave, the terrified woman realized that the phone lines were cut. She tried to call for help. Nothing happened. Yeah, very BTK. Right on. She locked the front door and ran to her husband's cousin's house, which was nearby, to call the police. This cousin ran to Donna's house with an axe to guard the children while she was at his house calling for help. Donna went to the hospital that night, and, of course, they did a rape kit. But DNA extracted from it was not matched to any known offenders. Keep in mind, again, this is 1993. Right. And the police, this is... This is like double sad. This woman is is violently attacked in her own home, a terrifying, humiliating experience. And then on top of that, the police were not so great in this situation. Assholes. There you go. Yeah. That's what they call not so great people. <sighs> they chose not to believe Donna. In fact, they uh. accused her of lying because they're they're questioning you know what is the likelihood that this happened on the one night that her husband was out of town they suggested that she was having an affair and was trying to cover it up
2: i suggest for every male out there that doesn't understand um sexual assaults or 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 rape claims to watch and i know it's a drama but you could learn a lot from the show unbelievable and just the process in which females have to go through to report these assaults and and how many times they're not believed uh by family members friends and the system
1: yeah and where my mind goes with this group of guys would be uh, you know were their wives cheating on them is that why their mind went to that Immediately? Yeah. I've, I have no idea. I don't understand why they wouldn't believe a woman who ran to someone else's home to call for help. I mean, seems bizarre to not give her the benefit of every doubt oh, you yeah. could possibly have. Or her, right?
2: also send one of your family members with an axe yeah. to, to guard your children.
1: I mean, yeah, he clearly believed her. So it was an agonizing few years for this victim, for Donna, as her case stalled because— the police did not seem to exhibit any interest, really, in pursuing it. I mean, they, they told her they didn't believe her. So in 2001, now Donna, she's pretty kick-ass, right? She filed a civil suit claiming that the Waterbury Police Department did not do their job. Good for her. On a With a tape of her interview session with the Waterbury Poli- Police Department, where they accused her of making the whole thing up, This tape, now that she's taken them to court, magically disappears, right? Mm -hmm. But the jury believed Donna anyway, and she won her suit against the police department. Yet her rape case still sat dormant with no arrest. This was until John Reagan was arrested in 2004 for the assault on his co-worker. And his DNA was found to be a match to that of the rapist of Donna 11 years earlier. The news was incredible to everyone because she and her husband were friends with the Reagan's close friends. They attended each other's weddings. In fact, John Reagan knew that Donna's husband was going to be out of town that night. That's why he knew to break into the home. Yeah. Sicko. So in 2004, this John Reagan, he was arrested First for the attempted attack on his coworker, he's released on $25,000 bond, but was again arrested when weeks later his DNA came back to link him to that 1993 rape. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations had expired on Donna's rape case. So all John could be charged with on her case was kidnapping. He pled not guilty and was released on $350,000 bail. Ooh. Yeah. Big spender. Better get a better job. I hope you got some good income. (laughs) Somebody was able to make that bail. He spent more than a year awaiting trial. And in the meantime, well, he managed to rack up some more charges. In the fall of 2005, he dropped off a roll of film to be developed at a Walgreens. The film processor guy, well, he was a pretty smart dude, and he recognized John Regan from the local news. So he thought, I better take an extra look at these photos that John dropped off.
2: He's either a smart guy or he was a sicko himself.
1: Well, I'm going to go with smart, good, (sighs) upstanding citizen, because these were not loving shots of family scenes, one that people would expect to see. No, instead, these were clearly surveillance style photos of women going about their everyday activities who did not know that they were being photographed. So Waterbury police worked to charge John Regan with stalking. But as they were putting together their case, something else happened. In 2005, John traveled back and forth between Waterbury and a property owned by his family in Saratoga Springs, New York. He was living there and working as a handyman when the following occurred on Halloween. A 17 year old nationally ranked track star at Saratoga Springs High School named Lindsay Ferguson returned her car at the conclusion of the afternoon practice. Next to the driver's side of her vehicle, a van was parked so close that she had to, like, you know, like turn to the side and kind of squeeze her way. In so that she could enter her vehicle. Yeah. The incident was described in a New York times article. It said Saratoga Springs police said she came back to her car after track practice. There was a blue gray van parked next to her. She was putting some things in the back seat and she heard the van's sliding door open. A man grabbed her around the torso and mouth and tried to drag her into the van. She was able to get her mouth free, and she started screaming for help. Lindsay thought for a fleeting moment, you know, because it's Halloween, that maybe this was some kind of prank, but obviously very quickly it became apparent that it was not. She fought kicking and screaming, good for her, and attracted the attention of her coaches. They ran over... And one of the track coaches confronted this guy. The attacker gets back into his van, closed the door, and now he drives off. Another coach began chasing the vehicle, calling the police on his cell phone as he ran, telling them exactly where the van was heading and telling the license plate number at the same time. That's one fast guy running after this van.
2: Well, it's a track coach, right?
1: Right police pulled over the van and one of the officers is questioning the driver. The driver assured the officer that it was all just a misunderstanding. His partner is snooping around and looking inside the van at the same time. And this is this guy, this officer, finds that the rear seats of the van have been removed. In the large space in the back, they found a spread out tarp a rope that was pre-tied with slip knots, booze, a saw, a shovel, photography equipment, construction tools, and a syringe that was that contained a sedative. The man arrested that day driving the van was John Reagan.
2: Oh, he had to get all of his crimes in before he went to jail.
1: Well, the I think the other thing that here that's so scary is it's obvious whatever this guy was up to or whatever he wanted to do, he couldn't stop himself, even though he's already facing charges. And like you said, maybe he's so damn addicted to this or he's so entrenched in these fantasies that he has that he's got to live one more time before they put him behind bars.
2: Right. This is why this type of crime, there should be no bail. Because it's, you know that uh, addiction or drive. I mean, we've seen it. We saw it with Bundy. We saw a guy that seemed to be very calculated turn into a wild animal uh, when he was on the on the run.
1: Now, also found in the van were photos of other young women, including the young co-worker that John had assaulted in Connecticut. Mm, got him. So it turned out that there was proof that John had not seized Lindsay and a simple crime of opportunity. He had been stalking her. He was found to have looked her. This is the young track student or track yeah. star. He had had photographs of her and it was found that he had looked her up on his computer and taken pictures of her beforehand. He had targeted her and it had been following her for an unknown amount of time. John Reagan was not able to get bail this time. There you go. Captain. He was charged in Saratoga County with attempted kidnapping. While in Saratoga Springs jail, he tried to commit suicide by attempting to hang himself. Oh. I wish he would have been better at that.
2: Well, they should have just had the guards help him out. <laughs> right. Hey, what are you trying to do in there? Okay, no, tie the
1: knot this way. Get get this yeah. man some better sheets. Yeah. He was transferred to the Central New York Psychiatric Center near Utica to await trial. Meanwhile, his connected family, remember he comes from a a good family, a successful family. They hired a powerful Hartford lawyer to represent him. Now, after Reagan was arrested in 2005, a 50-year-old woman came forward and reported that at a Memorial Day picnic way back in 1981, Reagan restrained her in his vehicle in an alleyway and assaulted her in his vehicle. She said she knew Regan. She knew his father. His father was her dentist. She said that she never reported the incident because she was embarrassed. In May of 2006, John Regan pled guilty to second degree attempted kidnapping of Lindsay Ferguson. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison in New York State. In October of that same year, Remember, this guy's getting charged with all kinds of stuff. He's in court again, this time in Connecticut, on the kidnapping and unlawful restraint and stalking charges. He was not required to admit his guilt at this trial, but he did acknowledge that the prosecutors had enough evidence for a conviction. The old no contest plea, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. The agreed upon sentence in Connecticut was for 15 years to be served Concurrently with the New York term, after John Reagan's arrest in 2005 for the attempted abduction of Lindsey Ferguson, investigators in Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts, as well as the FBI, started digging into Reagan to see if they could link him to any other crimes. Two of these were the unsolved murders of Mildred Alvarado and Karen Everett. These are sex workers who were strangled to death in Harrington in 1988 and 1989. Both of these victims were known to police to work in an area that was one mile from Regan's house. But investigators suspect that Regan operated on a much wider scope too. As an interstate traveling salesman, remember he's a traveling salesman, This for a company called ABC Supply, well, he had access to a wide range of locations where he could have committed rapes and or murders. All right. Now, that was a long tangent. So what does this POS, what the captain likes to say, piece of shit, John Regan have to do with Suzanne Lyle? When he was arrested in Saratoga Springs, the Lyle's, very smart parents, asked the police to revisit Susie's case to see if he could be responsible, to see if anything ties him to Susie's case. There are some, let's say, circumstantial evidence. Let's go through some of this here. Regan's family property in Saratoga Springs, the town where he tried to abduct Lindsey Ferguson, the track star, was near the sunny Albany campus. It was roughly a 30-mile drive. Okay. Susie had mentioned to her coworker that she thought that she was being stalked and she didn't know who the guy was. Mm -hmm. Remember Reagan was known to stalk and photograph his eventual victims.
2: Yeah. What did I just say about predators? If you're going to go fish, you go to the pond with the most fish.
1: That's right. So he could have spotted Susie at the mall, or spotted her walking from the bus, or at the bus stop at any time, and fixated on her. Yeah. Susie told her coworker that while she didn't know who the guy was, she was not afraid of him. Th- this is all a very weird,
2: but again, we st- got statement the s- to me the soccer dad,
1: right? And as said earlier, I mean John Regan was known to be. Maybe he's a friendly guy who was well-liked by the people that didn't know what he was really up to. He was an outgoing dude.
2: And if she ever made eye contact with him, he might have smiled and that might have been just enough where she's like, okay, this guy's a little strange, but not that worried about
1: it. Well, maybe that's how he locked in on her, right? Maybe yeah. he came in contact with her. Maybe he spoke to her at the store where she worked at the mall. And then started secretly following her and observing her routines and decided to snatch her after she got off the bus that night.
2: Did, did you say where they found the sex workers at?
1: Um, I did not, but they were known to work within a mile of his home. I don't know that they really have anything other than that linking him to those possible cases. Right. It sounds to me like both those cases went cold very quickly And they didn't have a whole lot in the way of leads.
2: But we also see a pattern of him not being able to control these urges.
1: Exactly. This is something he, these urges are in control of him. Yeah. The 2005 attempted abduction of Lindsay Ferguson looks very much like the work of a seasoned abductor or maybe even a seasoned killer. The materials, I mean, think about the materials found in his van and the amount of preparation that he had to go to. A lot of that doesn't seem to indicate that this was his first time. In fact, we know that it wasn't. He's broken into somebody else's home, raped her in her home, and now he's coming very well prepared to kidnap, assault, and do whatever else he decides to do should he get that poor girl into his van.
2: Well, and he's so arrogant that he believes he can get away with it. It doesn't matter who. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter even even if you know him, even if he's a close friend of yours.
1: And some say that he was known to spend time in the area near the campus where Suzanne disappeared. Now, in a terrifying recent development, John Regan, remember he got concurrent sentences. This is not a good thing for anybody. He was released from prison in October of 2019, three years earlier.
2: Can anybody explain to me why there's a statute of limitations on rape charges?
1: Um, I don't believe that there is today. I believe that that has changed. Um, I'd have to look that up, and it might vary state by state. But I think that that is something that especially, changed in the late nineties. I, I don't have that information right in front of me.
2: Especially like in this case, we have definitive evidence that he's guilty of this. Right. So I I would not. I just don't understand. Doesn't make any sense.
1: Um, he is subject to post release supervision until the year twenty twenty four. He is apparently living in the Saratoga Springs area of Massachusetts and working as a skydiving instructor. So uh, any female listeners in that area should be particularly careful.
2: Yeah, when you're a skydiving instructor, you're strapped to the person's back. So you have this creepo strapped to your back. What a way to go.
1: while your subscription is active.
2: All right, we're back. Cheers, mates.
1: Call cans in the air, my friends. Mm. The other possible suspect in A Stranger Abduction of Susie Lyle is serial killer Israel Keyes. Keyes has taken on a reputation of almost mythical proportions. He is, as we like to say, the catch-all killer. Herman Webster Mudgett, a.k.a. H.H. H. Holmes and the Ed Wayne Edwards, fit this category as well. He is just the newest amongst these three, where if this guy was alive and out at the time and we have an unsolved murder, this is somebody you should look at. So I find that to be, well, really just stupid, to be honest with you. I don't follow the old suspect zero theory way of thinking very much, but Keys is an interesting possibility in this scenario. All right. So why is that? Well, before we get too far along, I do want to point out that Keyes has it has been floated out there that he is a suspect by the followers of such cases as Jennifer Kessie, Russell and Shirley Derman, and Mara Murray, all cases which we have covered. Now, this is because Israel was a notoriously cunning, devious killer who left very little to no trace of his crimes. It's very likely that he's responsible for Who knows how many murders, but in the case of Susie Lyle, there are some actual links between the two that could point to Israel keys being involved. Now to say that Israel keys was a methodical and calculating killer is like saying that Albert Einstein was a bright guy. Some of you have heard of the kill kits that keys buried around the country in preparation for crimes. He would commit much later. Sometimes he would fly to cities across the U.S., then rent a car and drive a thousand miles to find a victim to kill. He would select victims that suited him at random, the ultimate crimes of opportunity. As a result, his crimes are almost impossible to pin down. With in regards to Susie Lyle, well, when Keys was arrested, the FBI spent months interrogating Keyes. There are over 40 hours of videotaped interviews with Keys, many of which are available for viewing on the FBI's website. Now, to say that he was interrogated isn't really the right word. The FBI agents sucked up to Keys in every manner, bringing him treats like cigars and bagels and doing him favors. It's gross, but it worked, kind of. Keyes only told them just as much as he wanted, and then he committed suicide in his cell in 2012, leaving investigators to try to piece together the rest. But here is what we know about Keyes. He is believed to have killed approximately 11 people. Again, no one really knows for sure how many victims he really had. He claims his first abduction was in 1997 when he kidnapped and raped a teenage girl who was whitewater rafting on the Deschutes River in Oregon. Israel let her go and said later that he had lost his nerve about killing her. This is believed to have been his first actual attempt to carry out his murderous fantasies. He told the FBI that he had been, quote, two different people for 14 years The experts who have spent years studying Israel agree that it is very likely that this means his first successful murder was in 1998. This is also the year that Susie Lyle vanished. He claims to not have successfully killed anyone, though, for a few years after the Deschutes River abduction. No one really seems to believe this. Israel Key's owned property in Constable, New York, this was a 10-acre parcel of a rundown house on Poplar Street that he purchased in 1997. Okay, so this puts him in the state of New York within a year of this young woman going missing. Right. He was staying at this location during the time period in which Susie was taken. This is about 200 miles from the spot where she was abducted, so it's still a good deal of distance, but we can put him in the same state. Israel Keyes was known to be very familiar with the area and spent quite a bit of time there. He would later go on to rob a bank in Tupper Lake, New York, in 2009. Keyes told investigators that one of the ways he planned his murders And to elude detection was to commit the abduction, the murder, and the disposal all in three different states. Albany, New York is very close to the borders of each of Massachusetts and Vermont. Mm -hmm. Seems like a uh, preferred location for this man. And there is a good chance that he was in the area of the SUNY Albany campus in March of 1998.
2: Well, like you said, he also traveled quite a bit. So a thousand mile drive when he's saying that's not that far f- for him to drive, um, you know, two 200 miles isn't that far.
1: Right. And we have a witness who says she can put him in that area in the month that Susie disappeared. So this woman who was an attorney for the U.S. State Department spoke with the FBI after Keyes was arrested in 2012. She said that she recognized him from an incident when she was loading packages into her car outside of a Marshall's department store in Albany. This in March of 1998, she says a young man with wavy dark hair who she described as looking like Beaker from the Muppets approached her and they had a very bizarre encounter with this man. Mm she said that this incident was unnerving to her and she would never forget it. So when she saw Israel on the news years later, she says she was 100% certain that it was he who she spoke with that night, recognizing both his face and, she says, his voice. Seeing the video was traumatic for her because she remembered Keys so clearly. The marshals in Albany, is across the street from the Army Recruitment Center where, a few months later, Israel Keys would enlist in the Army. The Marshall Store and the Army Recruitment Center are both on Central Avenue, the same street that the Stewart's convenience store where Susie's ATM card was used just two miles down the road. So this all really puts... It seems very likely that this man, Israel Keyes, may have been in this area that month. Right. I find it, and it's a huge coincidence that he enlist in the army at the recruitment center across the street from this Marshall store. Cause at first I was like, am I supposed to believe this woman who says years earlier, she recognized this guy. Right.
2: But it's right across the street from the Marshall's parking lot that she's claiming she was at talking to Beaker.
1: Yeah and and then top that off with she's an officer of the court she's a you know an attorney with the US state department so she's got some credibility and it seems like the FBI they believe her to be credible
2: well it seems like he's he's also planning out his d- disposals of the body maybe more so than a lot of killers so i wouldn't suspect that he would dispose of bodies on on property that he owned but do you know how- if they've searched that property that
1: much, I believe that this property has been searched a good deal. He would have been, and I, look, I don't like to champion these guys. Um, I don't like to pat him on the back.
2: We just called him Beaker. So no.
1: Keys would have been too smart to bury somebody on his property, right?
2: He well, just wouldn't I, have done that. And I don't one think thing, it's smart. I think it's there was a discipline there.
1: Well, one thing that he's doing that is very that shows his level of preparedness and his level is discipline as you say is it's clear to me that in several occasions of his crimes that he is choosing the disposal site before he's choosing a victim right which is in complete opposite order that a lot of other criminals carry out this type of behavior he loves the randomness of the victim one for his own Enjoyment, but two, so that he is not detected. Yeah, but
2: maybe there's also a thrill there as well.
1: Right, his own enjoyment.
2: Yeah, where it's like that's part of his sick fantasy is that he, I got a plan where I'm going to dispose of the body. I have to plan all these things out. And once that is planned out, now I just have to find the victim. And that's, I think, part of, part of his sick game where we see, in Reagan's case, part of his sick game is stalking them and taking pictures of them and understanding their movements.
1: Yeah, it seems that Keys enjoys the—it's like, it's like a, a video game, right? You know when you play a level on that game for the first time— what your ultimate goal is. You don't know what you're going to encounter along the way. Mm -hmm. He knows what the end result is the end result that he wants. He loves the thrill of the uncontrolled, unexpected variable of what the randomness of the victim could throw his way. Now Susie's ATM card was used to take out $20 after she was abducted or after she went missing the person who did this managed to avoid using a machine with surveillance cameras. Israel told the FBI that he was very careful to avoid machines with cameras. And he used Samantha's, he used a previous victim's ATM card to take out $20 to be sure that she had given him the correct pin. So this was something he had done on another occasion, right? When he abducted a, a woman, took her ATM card and, got her to give him the pin, and then successively chose chose machines that did not have cameras on them. And the final piece of compelling evidence that Keyes could have been responsible for Susie Lyle, on his computer, the FBI found searches that had been conducted for 44 missing persons. It is believed that this list of names is a combination of both Israel Keyes' victims plus other missing persons cases that he was interested in for whatever reason. We know that at least two of his actual victims are on that list. And another name that is on that list is Suzanne Lyle. And Keyes admitted to killing one New York state victim. She also fits this profile. Of course, the statistical odds that an infamous serial killer such as Israel Keys killed Susie Lyle are still very, very low, but there is just enough there to make us think that perhaps it's not so unlikely after all. I do also want to note here, our listeners will be interested to hear this, Captain, that Jennifer Markham was also on this list. As we know, she was killed by Scott Lee Kimball, who we covered. Right. So again, it's believed that this list is his victims, plus some missing persons that he was interested in. Whatever reason, Jalik Rainwalker is also on this list. And it seems very unlikely that keys was the killer of, of young Jalik, unless he just so happened upon the child after, He ran off right now, whoever took Susie, it seems almost certain that it was not just someone who was, you know, hiding in the bushes or someone who followed her from the mall on the bus. Since there's no trace of her that's ever been found except for this ID tag, it seems certain that a vehicle had to have been used in her abduction, get her, grab her, put her in the vehicle and then drive off. Both Keys and John Regan, of course, were known to have used vehicles in their crimes and in their attempted crimes as well.
2: All right, so where do we go from here?
1: Well, we do have some victim advocacy that was set up by Susie's parents. Her mother, Susie's mother, Mary Lyle, says that after wallowing in her depression for five years, she was finally able to motivate herself to trying to Take a more active role in the search for her daughter. She and her husband Doug established the Center for Hope, an organization designed to provide support and assistance to other families of missing persons and push for legislation to enhance law enforcement's response to missing persons reports. The Center for Hope also helped create New York's annual Missing Persons Day, which is in April each year observed on the Saturday closest to Susie's birthday. The organization, which has nonprofit status also helped produce and distribute 55,000 drink coasters to area restaurants and 30,000 decks of playing cards to all of the county jails in New York. The coasters and cards feature missing persons, cold cases, They were the brainchild of the Lyles, who heard of a similar program in Florida. According to the Times Union, the Center for Hope also worked in tandem with New York officials to create the investigative guide for missing college students and collaborate with law enforcement to publish what to do if a loved one goes missing, a guide for left-behind family members. The Lyles were directly responsible for getting some significant legislation passed at both the state and federal level. In 2000, Governor George Pataki signed the New York State Campus Security Act, which requires all colleges to develop plans for investigating a missing student or violent offense committed on campus. This was to avoid situations like that they, the Lyles, had encountered where Susie's disappearance was sort of dismissed by the campus police and there were no protocols for contacting law enforcement. Then in 2003, President George W. Bush signed Suzanne's Law, which eliminated the waiting period for law enforcement to launch an investigation when a person between the ages of 18 and 21 goes missing. And in 2007, Congress enacted the Suzanne Lyle Campus Security Act, which requires colleges across the country to have written plans on how they will work with local law enforcement agencies. If you think about all of the missing college students we have covered just on our show, Lauren Spearier, Brian Schaefer, Jesse Ross, Mara Murray, these important laws could have certainly helped their families address their tragic situations with more efficiency and expediency. A year after Susie was taken, Doug Lyle wrote a letter that he published on his blog offering a $25,000 reward for information on his daughter's whereabouts. The letter was addressed to the person who took Suzanne. Here are some excerpts. I often wonder whether March 2nd means anything to you. Do you remember the 19-year-old young woman you took from us? Do you still have her with you? It has been nearly a year since she vanished, but she is just as loved and dearly missed. Do you know the person you took? Susie is a very creative person and is inspired to write poetry that seems to flow in from outside of her. She is a shy but a friendly person whose warm smile and easy manner can cut through others' sadness and put those around her at ease. Her sense of fairness and loyalty to her friends are well appreciated by those who know her well. You took away a wonderful person, someone who probably would have stood up for you if things weren't fair. Did no one do nice things for you? I have found some comfort in picturing you Not as a mean, ugly, bad person, but someone's child. Someone deserving and needing love and acceptance, who possibly misunderstood Susie's friendship as a romantic interest. If love wasn't shared in your family, I'm sorry. Every person is entitled to the love and caring that family and friends provide. If you still have Susie, I wish for something good to happen to you a success that makes you feel satisfied and positive about yourself. Hopefully, then you will treat her well. I hope you have peaceful moments when you can walk in the woods or through the fields, content, not miserable, and vindictive. I'm not sure what I would say, although after so much time, surprisingly, I don't hate you. I know nothing about you. I wonder if you were ever like Susie. Did you love homemade chocolate chip cookies? Did you go to Rush concerts? Did you play jokes on April Fool's Day? Did you spend time on the computer, oblivious to anything else going on around you? Susie is more than a girl on a poster. Her mom and dad, Steve and Sandy, miss her daily. She has dreams and hopes and potential. For my own survival, I have had to let go of anger or I would be consumed by it. But the questions persist. The full letter, should you wish to read it, is available online at suzannelyle.com. Now, of course, Suzanne Lyle is still missing to this day. This is an old case, but to this day, she's still missing. She is five foot three inches tall and weighs between 165 and 175 pounds. She has long reddish-brown hair and blue eyes. She has a brown-colored birthmark on her left calf and a mole on her left cheek beneath her earlobe. She has a surgical scar on her left foot. Susie wears eyeglasses or contact lenses. She was last seen wearing a long black trench coat, blue jeans, and a black shirt. She may also have been wearing a polished 14-karat gold fluted bow ring, a frog-shaped silver ring, and a necklace with a silver medallion inscribed with a character that resembles the letter S or a lightning bolt. I do want to point out to the listeners here, Captain, this is very important, as these items have not been found. And there have been other missing persons cases that we have discussed where it, these items are just as important as finding the person themselves. So, if you've seen these items, have them in your possession, or have information about these items, this is something you should be passing on to the proper channels. Sadly, it seems that we may never know what happened to Susie Lyle. If either Israel Keys or John Reagan got her, her body may never be found. Sadly, her father, Doug, who spent so many years fighting for his daughter's cause, passed away in 2015 after an illness. Mary Lyle continues to work with the Center for Hope. She still has hope that her daughter will be found, but 21 years later, it's harder to maintain optimism. Whenever a body is found, Mary waits for a phone call telling her whether the DNA matches her daughter's or not, which is on file. Another victim we discussed today, Donna Palombo, also became an activist for victims' rights. In 2007, she founded an organization called Jane Doe No More, which advocates on behalf of victims of sexual assault. Donna was also instrumental in the passage of legislation mandating the removal of the statute of limitations in Connecticut cases that have DNA evidence.
2: Head on over to TrueCrimeGarage.com and there you can find all of our recommended reading. What's our recommended reading
1: for this week? This week we are recommending The Forest City Killer by Vanessa Brown. 50 years ago, a serial killer prowled the city of London, Ontario. Who was the Forest City Killer? Is he still alive or was it more than one person? All good reasons to read The Forest City Killer killer by Vanessa Brown.
2: Again, you can find all of those at truecrimegarage.com. And until next week, be
1: good, be kind, and don't live.